If you want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 28. So we went all the way up through chapter 30 last week and skipped 28. Uh, We're going to come back to it today and then next week, hopefully, Lord willing. I think the last time I actually laid out what my future sermon plans were was the week before the coronavirus shut down, and then things changed a little bit after that. Uh, but tentatively, what I have planned, man plans his ways, the Lord directs his steps, uh, is we'll do chapter 28 today, and we'll finish 1 Samuel next week, and then I've got a couple of topical series planned for the summer, and then we'll jump into Colossians, hopefully, in the fall is my, is my plan. We'll see how my plan goes and see what God has planned, but that's my plan. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, it's an old phrase, and it's a common phrase. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And when I hear that, I always immediately go to like the fourth quarter in a football game where you do something where it's, you've got just a few minutes left, maybe no, almost no time left, and you're down by a touchdown or two. And you start doing things that any other time in a ball game would be stupid. Like, let's just drop back and huck the ball into the end zone and see like, the old Hail Mary pass. You do it because you're desperate. You wouldn't normally run a play like that because it has a very low chance of success, but you just desperately need some points, and so you do things that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, I, I was reading, in, in shift to a more serious analogy, uh, I was reading a a book about the early days of the Vietnam War several months ago, and it was was interesting, almost terrifying even just listening to them describe it. But but guys who were in in these early fights, the first major engagements in Vietnam, where the fighting was so intense that they were actually having to call down artillery on their own position because there was no other way they were going to get out. You know, that's something desperate that you wouldn't normally do, but... But when you have no other choice, you, you do what you have to do. When we're desperate, we do things that, that wouldn't normally be called for, that wouldn't normally make sense. Now, in life, whether we're desperate or not, we always have this question in front of us. Will the choice I make, will, will I do what honors God or not? Or, or maybe to phrase it another way, what's my greatest Fear. Who is my greatest fear? God or something else? So we're going to read all of 1 Samuel 28 as we begin, and then we'll come back through, and I just want to ask three questions as we look at this text. 1 Samuel 28 says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. 
he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all night, all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go out on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. first question I want to ask as we look at this text is why are you desperate? Why are you desperate? In, in verses 3 through 7, or 3 through 6 rather, we see the beginnings of Saul's desperation. And in verse 3, we're given essentially in the first half of the verse a repeat of chapter 25 verse 1, which had told us that Samuel had died. Samuel's been dead for quite some time by the time we get to verse 20 or chapter 28 but it's important for us to know for this story right the verse 3 the the author is giving us information that we need to know to make this story make sense Samuel is dead and Saul has previously probably years before this kicked all the mediums and the necromancers out of Israel he's either had them killed or had them run off into hiding that's something we need to know for the story to make sense. And then as we get into verse 4, remember that this is a story in chapter 28 that's actually a flash forward in the narrative. So in chapters 27, 
it, it moves the timeline moves seamlessly from 28 3 or 28 2 to chapter 29 and chapter 28 takes place after this it's it's brought back to give us some some narrative tension but but whereas in chapter 29 verse 1 the Philistines are still at Aphek which is kind of like in the middle it, it's west of Israel but it's kind of along the middle now they're clear up in the north here in chapter 28 verse 4 they're they're assembled at Shunem so that would be in the region that when we think of the New Testament we think of Galilee up in the north of Israel this is that region Shunem's way up north up there and so the Philistines have got up north of of Israel it's like they've circled Saul's army and they're coming down from above now and Saul he sees that they're gathering there and he is afraid he's terrified it says Verse 5, Saul saw the army of the Philistines, and he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And not only is it bad because the Philistines are gathering against him, and, and remember, Saul has not fared well against the Philistines except when he has David fighting for him, right? So, I mean, remember the story of David and Goliath. David is, or Saul has been quaking in his boots with the rest of the army for weeks while, while Goliath comes out and challenges them. And it's not until David comes that there's any solution to the problem. And then David is the one going out and killing his tens, thou- tens of thousands of Philistines. And, and Saul, he's not had much luck against them. And now he's driven David away over to the Philistines. So his only good Philistine killer is now on their side, as, at least as far as Saul knows, right? So he's got good earthly reason to be afraid but it's worse still because in verse 6, when he goes to talk to God, God doesn't talk back. God has quit answering Saul's prayers. Why wouldn't God answer Saul? It tells us in verse 6 that God neither answered him by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And the middle one there, the Urim, we don't really totally understand like what the Urim is. Like it, I mean, it's, it's a stone that was in the breastplate of the high priest how they how god used it to communicate to the people that's people wonder about it there's all kinds of speculation but there's no real solid answers but we know why saul doesn't have access to it because a couple chapters earlier saul killed all the priests and the only priest who escaped goes over to david and so david's the one with the orm saul doesn't even have this available so god's not going to speak to him through that method but why wouldn't God speak to Saul in a dream or, or send a prophet to him to speak? Why had God quit answering him altogether? If you go back to chapter 15, where God initially rejects Saul, what does Saul not do in that passage? God gives him a clear instruction. What does he not do? He doesn't obey. He doesn't follow through. Now, he wants to say, well, I mostly obeyed. But he does not obey the clear instruction of the Lord. And, and if we look at James chapter 1, James is pretty clear with us what kind of prayers God answers. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, 
It's like if you come to God needing wisdom, he's not going to say, that's a stupid question, you're a stupid person, I'm not going to answer. He gives generously to all without reproach. He's not going to reprimand you for asking him for something. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we're supposed to ask in faith. And then in James 2, chapter 2, verse 18, we see what James means by faith. He doesn't just mean like an intellectual assent. He means a belief that does something, a belief that follows out in actions. Chapter 2, verse 18 of James Someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. So a prayer in faith is a prayer that's going to then obey what God says. It's going to work out, as Paul says in Philippians 2, its own salvation with fear and trembling. It's going to see what God says and obey him, not just say, I need more information. Now, if you're praying and then not listening to what God has clearly said, why is God going to give you more information if you don't obey what's already understood? So Saul has clearly demonstrated he's not actually interested in obeying God. He just wants to know what's going on so that maybe he doesn't have to freak out so much. Saul has two causes for his desperation. First, the enemies lined up for battle, which in some sense is totally outside of his control, right? Although he has made the situation worse by driving his most reliable and best soldier over to the enemy's side. He's made that situation worse, but it is outside of his control that the, the enemy wants to attack him. That's what happens. Nations don't like each other. That, this is the whole story of human history. But the second cause of his desperation, that God is not listening to him, is of his own making. I, as I read this text, like, I, I feel like we need to ask ourselves, why are you desperate? Why am I desperate? When you are in a, in a spot where you're like, you feel like the world's crushing down on you and you don't know what to do, it's easy to look at the circumstances around us and blame them for how we feel. Or even to, to think about that feeling, like, I feel pressured, I feel crushed, I feel desperate, and see that as somehow necessarily noble. Well, Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, right? Well, Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. So, sometimes we're just, we feel persecuted by others because we're a jerk and they're responding. <laughs> Like, so, sometimes we do stupid things and we get the consequences of that. Sometimes we sin and God allows us to feel the weight in this life of how bad that sin is. When we go through hardship, we're never going to grow by trying to evaluate the evil in others or the goodness in ourselves and why we don't deserve this. Rather, Hebrews chapter 12 would encourage us to look at, at life with a different lens.
Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's talking about Jesus here. Such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now that's an interesting passage there in Hebrews because he takes the example of Jesus who suffered totally unjustly, right? There's nothing Jesus ever did to deserve the excruciating suffering that he underwent. But he then uses that as encouragement for us in our lives to endure suffering, but then to look at suffering And I think the implication is, whether it's just or unjust, we have the opportunity to see it as God's discipline to train us. I mean, that's what discipline is, right? It's training towards something. It's not, sometimes it's corrective and sometimes it's just formative, but it's moving us in a direction that we need to go. Holiness, it says here, that we may share in his holiness, verse 10. When we are walking through hardships, when we are in desperate times, we have the opportunity to ask God some questions. Lord, how do you want me to grow? Lord, what should I be learning? Is there sin in my life that I need to repent of? We can't figure out with our finite minds what the causes behind all of our suffering and all of those desperate circumstances are. But regardless of what the causes are, we can evaluate, Lord, what do you want me to learn? And we can ask him. And if we ask in faith, willing to obey, he will gladly give us the answer. If you ask God the question, Lord, what sin do I need to repent of? He will be faithful to tell you. (laughs) It's a scary prayer to pray. Uh, I don't pray it as often as I should because it does scare me. Um, but he's faithful to answer it. But Saul didn't come to God asking these questions. Saul gives up on prayer. So question two, as we look at this text, is where do you go in your desperation? Where do you go in your desperation? Verses seven and eight, Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium. Now remember verse three had told us he's already chased these people out of Israel or killed them, had them executed. Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. There's a blank spot in the the text. We don't know if they actually have to go seek somebody out, or if they just already knew that she was here. 
And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. It seems like, as you're reading, they've just got that on the tip of their tongue, which is curious. Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said to her, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So this was something that that I found interesting reading this passage this week and reading commentaries. Saul goes to this woman by night, and part of it is because he's going, he's doing something illegal, he's doing something against his own law. He's also doing something that's clearly against God's law. He's also having to go by cover of night, because to go from Gilboa to Endor, he has to go through enemy lines. The night before the battle, he's having to sneak behind enemy lines to get up to this medium. Now, who is a, a medium? A medium is someone who, who is thought to have contact with the dead. They're, they're someone who has the ability to, to mediate these dead spirits and speak to the living on behalf of the dead. They're almost always mentioned in the Old Testament, even here in this passage, twice, alongside necromancers. And that word necromancer just means one who is knowing or one who is wise, but the, the, the clear association in every context that it's used in the Old Testament is that that person becomes wise or knowing through illicit means, through, through some sort of wicked means rather than the normal ways of receiving knowledge, studying and praying and <laughs> learning over time through age. Rather, they're, they're trying to connect with spirits of some sort to give them secret knowledge. Now, this is clearly prohibited. I, w- I want to go back and read where it's prohibited there in Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 9, says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So this is Moses speaking to the people before they've gone into the promised land. You shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, here's the contrast, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. They listen to these things. They listen to these spirits. But God, the Lord your God, has not allowed you to do this. So it's clearly prohibited. We see Saul has recognized this in the past and enforced this as a law in Israel, nonetheless, he's about to break his own law. Verse 9, the, the woman is suspicious. She says, surely you know what Saul has done. It's almost like she's expecting maybe this is some kind of sting operation. They have, think maybe they haven't cleared us all out and maybe they're trying to get me too. But Saul, notice the irony here. Notice the irony in verse 10. Saul swore to her by the Lord. So here Saul is, clearly breaking God's law, having given up on praying to the Lord, but he's swearing by the Lord, hey, I'm not going to kill you. Hey, hey, I, I'm not going to turn you into the king. Like, believe me, just, just do what I'm asking you. 
And then in verses 11 and following, we have the woman responding to his request. So she asks who to call up. He says, call up Samuel. She goes through this whole process. And rather than read through that whole thing again, I just want to ask, is this real? Like, that's a burning question we should have as as we read this. Is this real? Is she actually calling up the spirit of a dead man to talk to him? And I think the answer in the passage is clearly yes. She is talking to Samuel. Five reasons that I think that's the case. Verse 14, it says, Saul knew that it was Samuel. Now remember, we, we believe that, that the scriptures, the authors are carried along. They're, they're giving us God's point of view. So the, the narrator is telling us that Saul knew. Not that Saul thought, not that Saul mistakenly understood, but rather Saul knew that it was Samuel. Secondly, verses 5 and 15, the author himself refers to the spirit that comes up as Samuel. Verse 15 Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Verse 20, Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. Not of a spirit pretending to be Samuel, not of some apparition, but of Samuel. Samuel is the one speaking to Saul. Thirdly, in verses 15 through 19, the message that Samuel gives is almost identical to the message that Samuel gives him in life in chapter 15. Almost the exact same message. With the addition of tomorrow, you and your sons are going to die, and the Philistines are going to take the army of the Lord. And that, we know in the passage that we'll look at next week, chapter 31, comes true. There's a a true prophecy and a reiteration of what the prophet has already told Saul. So we have a a true message coming through this spirit. Fourthly, this is a little less solid, but I I think it indicates this. Verse 12, you see the woman crying out when she sees this spirit. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. She knows there's something different here from what she normally experiences. My guess is that this woman, who is a a medium, is probably used to talking to spirits who are demons. She's probably used to talking to demons impersonating the spirits of the dead. And when she calls up Samuel, and it's someone who to her appears like, not a a spirit, but like a god, she knows something's weird. Something, this this is not what I'm used to experiencing, and she cries out. Fifth reason, I think we've got a situation where she has called up Samuel and clearly is not pretending to have communicated something to Saul here. As several commentators note on this passage, God's prohibition of of sorcery, of necromancy, of mediums, of witches, like all of that, those prohibitions that God gives are not because they don't at some level work. That's never said in the scripture. It's always interesting. You read through Exodus and those sorcerers, those magicians in Egypt, they are 
Now, it's kind of a parody of what Moses and Aaron are able to do with the different miracles, turning the staff into the snake, turning the water into blood. It, but they're still doing something miraculous. Like, there is power here that they are dealing with. Now, as, as like, modern Westerners, like, my reaction to, to this stuff is normally, like, well, they're just imagining things. Or these are all tricksters. They're hucksters. And some of them probably are. Like, you see some of these people today, and there you go talk to a palm reader at the fair. Maybe some of them just are trying to pull the wool over your eyes. That's entirely possible. But there is something going on here beyond the natural realm. What we sense as the natural realm, what maybe better known as like the seen realm, beyond what our eyes can see. This lady talks to spirits, and she knows when it's a real dead person that this is not what I'm used to talking to. No, the reason God prohibits these things is not because there's not some kind of knowledge to be gained, some kind of power to be accessed, but because it's evil, because it's rebellion against him. It's rebellion against his lordship. That is the problem. God, God in this case, seems to have used Saul's wicked actions in pursuing a medium, and God, able to move, as the, the poet William Cooper said, in mysterious ways, he's able to speak through this. But what should we learn? Surely the lesson isn't, well, it worked for Saul, it'll work for me too, right? No, the, the narrator clearly wants us to see that this is, is wrong. The first line of application is pretty obvious. Don't go seeking these things out. Don't go to the palm reader at the fair. Don't read the horoscope for your information on your life. Don't go consulting Ouija boards. Don't, don't go seeking out demonic or occultic ways of getting information, of connecting with the spirit realm. There's only one spirit that we should want connected to. That's God's Holy Spirit. Secondarily, I, I, was, I was really meditating on that, that idea of, of necromancers and, and that idea of pursuing hidden knowledge. And just thinking about like what other ways besides just the obvious, and I hope that's obvious that you shouldn't like go to a tarot card reader, go get your palm read. Like I hope that's obvious to you. If it's not, don't do it. But, but beyond that, there are other ways that we seek knowledge we aren't meant to have. I, I think of C.S. Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength. I don't know how many of you have read it. Uh, his space trilogy is fantastic. If I want to plug fiction books, that's what I want to plug. Um, Narnia is cool, but I love the space trilogy way more. Uh, He, he, he talks about, he, he makes a distinction between science and scientism. So science is the study of the, the world and trying, you know, early, early scientists, they, in, in the early modern period, like a lot of them were Christians who believed that there's an, a logical, orderly God who created the world in a logical, orderly way, and we can study it and learn things. You know, we're, we can think God's thoughts after him. But 
especially as you get into the 19th century and there's this turn to try to push God out of science and put it up as its own source of knowledge. Rather than thinking God's thoughts after him, we're going to just think about the truth, capital T, not acknowledging that there is a God behind that truth. And it gets lifted up as its own source of information. And you hear that a lot the last year. Follow the science, follow the science, whatever the science means at that particular moment. And we treat science, quote unquote, as if it is God and can give us all knowledge. And we worship it. And it it just becomes its own religion. And, And we think that through this, we're going to be able to figure out the cure to death or the, the there, there's all these things we think we can improve our lives and extend our lives and someday we'll get that magic place where science gives us all knowledge science is not going to give you all knowledge i think you also see this i think this is the draw of conspiracy theories is a conspiracy theory gives you a theory of, of a, a hidden plan or a hidden scheme that pulls all these things that, that seem out of sorts and out of place in this world, and it pulls them together in a theory for you, and you feel like you've got the knowledge. You feel like you have the, the theory that explains it all. And that's why they're unfalsifiable, because every time you bring up a fact that's contradictory to it, well, that's just part of the conspiracy, too. Like, that... We can see there, there's clear there, there's clear connection between this deep desire that we have to know everything and rebellion against God. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. God has revealed himself to Adam and Eve, right? He walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And Satan comes in and says, you know why he doesn't want you to eat from that one tree? You know why he has that one rule? Because he doesn't want you to know good and evil. He doesn't want you to know what it's like to be him. And that desire for knowledge that God hasn't given, for knowledge beyond what we can bear, God, God protected them from evil because evil was bad for them. Evil separated them from him. But, but, but they desperately wanted that. It seemed appealing to the eye for food, and desirable to make one wise. Wise. So they thought. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. We can follow him. Saul falls prey to the ancient lie that God holds back knowledge from us because he isn't good. But God's given us what we need to know so that we can obey him and love him and trust him, be saved by him. He's given us what we need. We pray for wisdom to apply that rightly in our lives, but we don't need new information. He's given us what we need. Third question, whom do you fear? Verse 20. And Saul fell at once full length to the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Samuel, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. 
Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go out on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Saul falls to the ground, A, because he's afraid, B, because he hasn't eaten. We don't know whether he hasn't eaten just because he's been afraid for so long, and he just hasn't had the stomach to eat, or if that was part of like the ritual to do this, this going to the medium, whether it was part of the, the satanic practice. But they convince him to eat. And then it's interesting. Then they rose and went away that night. And just like the, the series of words where he eats the unleavened bread, she gives him a morsel, and they arose and went away into the night. It took my mind to John chapter 13. And then when I went and listened to Fred's sermon on this text, he made the same connection, so I didn't feel like I was being too crazy. Uh, John 13, verse 30, speaking of Judas, says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And you just almost wonder if John, as he's writing down this record of Judas, has in his mind this event with Saul, where... God is always willing to hear a repentant sinner's prayer. But this person is so hard in their heart towards God that they're done. He ate the bread and he went out into the night. This is it. He's going to be dead the next day. That's how it was with Judas. That's how it was with Saul. Who do you fear this morning? Do you fear people? You feel like you've got to get more knowledge to protect yourself or to understand what's going on because this world is a scary place and you feel desperate? Or do you fear God? Saul feared David and he feared the Philistines and it drove him to a medium seeking forbidden knowledge. Where should we turn? I want to close by reading Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 11. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 11, says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. 
And then they will say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. To the teaching and to the testimony. We go to the word of God because we want to honor him as holy and we do so by listening to him alone. Would you pray with me? Father God, we want to hear your voice and we know we have full confidence and assurance that your voice comes to us through your word. So when we're afraid, Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, drive us to your word, drive us to our knees in prayer before your word that we might hear from you and take courage and take hope in you no matter what's going on around us and inside of us. We need you to speak to us. And we thank you that you're faithful to do it. Give us hearts that are submissive to you, we ask. For the sake of your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.